pretty controversial move on the part of the Arizona government to remove the mask mandate for children in the last month of school, aside from politics. It's a good example of the inconsistent message from politicians and from public health personnel and kind of shifting the responsibility. And the families are now scrambling and now the school districts have to justify it one way or the other. You just make everyone angry. And you put them in a no-win situation, right? Supply and demand has shifted, and and I think we're to that place where the highly motivated and or resourced people are now vaccinated. And we got to change the strategy. We need to make it more convenient. We got to get the vaccine to the people. We have to have a lot more spontaneous events where people can get vaccinated on the spot. I think that's job number one. Job number two is to make it a lot easier for doctors to have this vaccine in their office. And that means backing off on the onerous tracking and reporting stuff that makes it so hard for doctors to use these vaccines. There is one more thing, and that is we need the FDA to come down and, and finally just approve yes. these things. Yes. Get them done. EUA is great, but it's time now. Kind of, you know, settle it and say, look, there's been millions and millions of doses given. And look at how impressive the yeah. reporting system, the surveillance system is. It picked up a signal, six people out of several million doses. They can pick up a one in a million event. The reporting is good. And we now Which know means you've yeah. got enough evidence if you're FDA to say this is approved. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and it is time for another COVID-19 roundtable. Two weeks ago, we asked you to tell us if the roundtable is still helpful. You responded with resoundingly positive feedback. And thank goodness, because our experts really wanted to keep going. And boy, are we going to get into it today. New executive orders, the ins and outs of getting shots in arms, needed policy changes, and more. The big and small shocks, the bouts of exhaustion, and the aggrievements of this pandemic continue to reverberate which means we have more to explore, reflect upon, make sense of, and grow from. While we're at it, let's not lose sight of COVID's worldwide context either. On April 26, New Zealand recorded three new cases, the US 34,641, and India reported more than 350,000 for the fifth straight day. Here in Arizona, meanwhile, the new case counts are stubbornly not declining, while the daily count of vaccinations is. All of which is to say that there is much to discuss with our roundtable guests, so let's get to it. It's time to talk B117's ascendance, what's going on with hospitals and healthcare professionals, how COVID is becoming a young person's disease, how to make vaccines more convenient, and where we might go next as of April 26, 2021. As always, we are so grateful to have our guests with us today, starting with from Arizona State University, Dr. Joshua LaBear. Josh, how's it going? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Then there's the person who keeps us sane from Valley Wise Health, Dr. Kara Guerin. Kara, how are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> then there's the guy who drives us crazy from the Arizona Public Health Association, <laughs> Mr. Will Humble. Will, how's it going? Howdy. Happy late April. Who wants to tell us where we are now? Josh, some people think it's over. Clearly, if you like? watch a lot of public behavior, a lot of people think it's already over. 
It's not over. It is countrywide. It is trending in the right direction. The case numbers are coming down, probably a sign of the 200 million vaccine doses that have been given. That can't be hurting. I'm sure that's helping. In Arizona, we are kind of plateaued. We are hovering around the 700 new cases a day mark. If you look at the seven-day trailing average, and that is not really budging. It's not really going up, but it's not really going down. Yeah, our knot's about like 1.1 or 1.05. Yeah, so that's where we're sitting. I would love for it to be going down. The percentage of cases is shifting to younger people, largely because I think the older population has been well vaccinated. And the status in Arizona is that the cases are dominantly the B117 strain. So the UK strain, which we've been talking about for weeks now, is pretty much dominant here. I would say probably 80% of cases turn out to be that strain now. That is a little bit more infectious for younger people. So that may be why we're seeing more of that. Will, you're a big fan of Joe Gerald's report. His last weekly report documented cases up 6%, hospitalizations up 4%, COVID ICU beds up 24%. In part, that's because the numbers are lower than they used to be. So if you have a bolus of cases that come in and need some ICU treatment, then you can have the percentages go up a lot more. But even though we see an increase in hospitalizations and ICU bed this week compared to the two weeks before that, it doesn't mean we're in a hospital crisis or anything like that. The capacity crisis, no one's being displaced. But I was on the ASHA board and a lot of the hospital CEOs were talking about how it's going to take a long time for them to dig through all of the procedures and operations that got delayed in December and January. And their surgical rooms are really, really busy trying to catch up for people that needed surgeries and procedures that they couldn't get over December, January, and February. I mean, it should be no surprise if so many people got displaced. That's really what happened in December and January and the first part of February is that we were never like at way over capacity. It's just that people weren't able to get into the hospital that needed services and they got displaced and now they're coming back. We're talking about cancer surgeries. We're not talking about elective plastic surgery here. We're talking about real medical needs that just had to wait. And that's exactly what we're seeing uh, at Valleywise, everything that we're talking about. We don't see as much of the younger people coming in because I think a lot of them, in terms of large numbers, I think a lot of them just stay home. And I also think that a lot of them probably do not quarantine as they're supposed to. They suspect or have COVID, but that's obviously an overgeneralization. But we also are seeing just this week a dramatic increase in the number of COVID patients that need the ICU, but it was so low before that it's a dramatic increase because it is a rapid increase. And we're seeing the same thing, lots and lots of procedures going on. I will also say that a lot of healthcare workers are still tired. There was a recent survey that three out of 10 healthcare workers, and it was a very broad sense of healthcare workers, physicians, nurses, techs, were thinking about leaving medicine because of stress and burnout. And I think that's also going to play a role. It is playing a role and will play a role going forward. Without telling tales out of school, Kara, what is the atmosphere at Valleywise? How are people reacting in the wake of everything that they've gone through? I think it's a time where you can re-examine what you want to do. And when people re-examine what they want to do, some will leave medicine and some will just go somewhere else. So if they felt that the emergency department, for instance, was super high stress and 
put their family at risk, perhaps they're going to choose an area of medicine that is less risky or less demanding. Oftentimes in the emergency department is people get tired, especially healthcare workers that have the ability to change areas. So an ED nurse will get tired of being in the emergency department and go to the operating room. Many come back because it's a different environment, but the ability to move around. So some are saying, you know, the emergency department is just no longer for me. I can't do this anymore. And some people are just leaving medicine altogether. Do you see some of the younger members of Valleywise staff having a reaction of like, I had no idea it would be like this and I'm getting out? Yeah, I think that that's across the board. I think across the board, people are like, wow, I did not anticipate this. So they look at other options. And then on the flip side, people who are closer to retirement are like, this is my time to get out, even if it's too early or, or how can I get out? That's the other thing is I have X number of years left. Do I stick around or do I find some way out? So Kara, in a state that has always had a healthcare workforce shortage, always been short of doctors, always been short of nurses. What's your thought on how this is going to play out over the next few years? What's it going to do to our healthcare resources in Arizona? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I feel like a lot of it is ebb and flow. I feel like we get a lot of new graduates and that's good for a little while, but it doesn't seem to be the long-term solution. I know that companies are trying to help people. They've provided mental health resources and support but that can only go so far. And I think it has to be a system change. I don't know what that system change is. Now there's talk of PTSD and lots of other depression, lots of other mental illnesses that are gonna come as a result. I don't know what the answer is. Will, here's a particularly awkward question. Is it possible that folks who have been working in allopathic care and hospitals would actually opt to move into public health, even at the moment that federal resources are going to help to bolster public health across the country? Yeah, maybe. Take the Rescue Act funds. Think about this. Governor has the ability to allocate more than the state's general fund in a single year over the next few years. So the Rescue Act money for the state of Arizona is more than $12 billion with a B dollars, which is like around the state general fund amount. Just to give you an example, there's one line item in there for Arizona that over the next X years, it doesn't expire, Arizona has $153 million to train, recruit, and hire public health workers. Now, there's no boundaries around that yet. So we don't know what the Treasury Department or HRSA, if that's the federal agency that administers this, we don't know what the parameters are about what's allowed on that. But in my whole career over however long that's been, 30-something years, I've never, ever, ever seen this kind of an investment in public health Mm. workforce. So yeah, there's going to be some opportunities coming up. I just hope that it's used wisely and isn't squandered. Not just the public health, the 153 million, but the 12 billion is thoughtfully used in evidence-based ways to help improve public health. And a way to start is to look at those county health improvement plans, which all 15 of our counties have. And hopefully that the people that end up deciding how this money gets used are focusing on evidence for how to use it most effectively. 
Yeah, really, it's the county health improvement plans, the state health improvement plans. You've got a number of folks who've been working in public health, not the least of which the Arizona Public Health Association, to turn to if you have questions on how to spend that money, right? And Vitalist. And Vitalist. (laughs) I will say, relevant to the young people leaving medicine, when I went to medical school, it was in San Francisco at UCSF, and at that time, they were just beginning to see these cases of people with this weird cancer called Kaposi sarcoma, and people were getting this odd infection called pneumocystis pneumonia, and they were trying to figure out what is this thing that's going on in these people? And all of a sudden that broke out big during those years I was there. And so we, we definitely trained at a time when people were having to deal with this new crisis at the time. So I have a, a feeling for what that's about. Obviously it wasn't worldwide the way this is now, but still it had flavors of the same thing. So how did that play out? What, and what will that tell us about what's going to happen now? Well, I think you definitely see in healthcare, there are some people that rush into the fire and some people that don't want to do that. Definitely some of my compatriots wanted to participate in understanding whatever this was and wanted to take care of these people and wanted to participate. And then other people decided, I want a different subspecialty to deal with. I don't want to be part of that. I think at moments like this, they define people one way or the other. People become more of whatever it is they are, I suppose. I think it's a really good way of putting it. There's a huge increase in the number of applicants to public health school. Someone called it the, the Fauci effect. Mm. I believe it. Same thing with medical school applications, not the Fauci effect, but lots of people seeking higher education because of limited job opportunities, so many people losing jobs, but also seeing public health in the limelight and seeing what it can do, which is great. Josh, you and I were having a discussion before this recording, this notion of how the pandemic may or may not be shifting to young people. A number of publications have seized on this idea. There's some data. What's your thought? What does Arizona data say? Well, I mean, so it's a mixture of things. So certainly the relative mixture of cases is shifting towards younger ages. And I think clearly a a huge element there is the vaccination, which has focused largely on seniors for good reason, because those people are at high risk of negative outcomes. I think there's also an effect coming from the shift in variants to this UK variant, which is a more deadly variant and does infect younger people and cause symptoms in younger people more than the other variants did. And so maybe let's call it more anecdotal discussion among physicians who are seeing more young people coming into the hospital, more young people having worse outcomes, still not at the levels that you see in the older population who are many thousands times more likely to die from it. But nonetheless, you're seeing a lot more reports now of young people having bad things. And we can't forget that in Arizona, a quarter of the people who died from COVID-19 were middle-aged and younger. So this is not an illness that only affects old people. It is clearly an illness that can have severe negative outcomes for younger people as well. You can literally see on the CDC's tracker that younger age groups have now risen to the top when it comes to new cases. Right. Kara, does that send a message to people that, hey, maybe going to the bar is not a good idea? Don't know that that resonates for a number of different reasons. People are tired. People are tired of quarantining and wearing masks and social distancing. And I think innately, especially people in their teenage and early 20s, don't believe it's going to happen to them. The statistics are in their favor. If they get COVID, they probably are going to be fine. So the chances that you are that very slim percentage of people that get super sick is low. 
And especially if you don't have any other health problems. Now, if you have underlying health problems, obviously that's a totally different calculation. I just don't think that that resonates. Kind of the same way that getting vaccinated doesn't resonate. If you're playing the odds, you're going to be fine. And it's just not convenient. And in fairness to young people, Will, from a public health perspective, every young person thinks they're invincible, whether it's seatbelts or COVID-19. Yep, most of them. Yep. And men too, just like is the case with annual checkups and everything. Y'all in public health know that women show up for their annual physicals and screenings and stuff, and men don't to the same extent. We talk about a shift towards younger people. I expect this to start shifting towards men because they're just not getting vaccinated at the same rate at all. They're way behind. I think in Arizona, some 15, maybe even 20% behind women. That's look at, astounding. Yeah, but it's not surprising, though. I also think that probably not necessarily in the numbers, but now that we know how COVID affects pregnant women and fetuses a little bit more, women of childbearing age are probably a little bit more aggressive about getting a vaccine if they're thinking about having children or possibly getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. So back in public health, we'd say if you want to get a guy into his annual screening, somebody has to make the appointment for him. He'll go. <laughs> If you make the appointment, he'll go. We need like an appointment finder person (laughs) for each one of these men that aren't getting vaccinated. Honestly, I think right now where we are is all about making this vaccine more convenient. If you turn on the radio and stuff, it's like, oh, vaccine hesitant, anti-vax, blah, blah, blah. To me, I'm like, okay, that day will come, but right now, let's make it more convenient. So let's bring the vaccine to people. And honestly, I think the single most effective thing that we could do is if there's any way you can get rid of the appointment system and keep your operation up and running, then do it. Because then the website stuff isn't a barrier. Their personal life is less of a barrier. And if they're in like uh, their local Walgreens or CVS or something and for batteries or milk, and they go to the back and they see that there's no one there or only two or three people there, and they go, can I get the vaccine just like they would do for influenza? And then they go into the booth with the pharmacist and come out partially vaccinated or fully vaccinated if it's J&J. So I just think we need to really start focusing more on convenience and getting rid of appointments altogether. I think that's happening though. I'm hearing more and more now that people are taking walk-ups. I don't know that it's official everywhere yet, but you know, even the state is now backing down from all of its mass vaccination plans. It's shifting, getting doses to, to places where it's more convenient. Of course, outdoor vaccinations are going to be a problem anyway coming soon. So I think that's already happening, what you're describing. I- I drive by the highway sign every time I'm on the highway that says we're taking walk-ins at this state vaccination pod. That's happening. Yeah, Yeah. it is happening. Eight weeks ago or so, we joked and laughed about, well, if we could just do vaccinations at the bars, that'd be a great thing. Now, in Europe, they have programs called a shot for a shot. (laughs) That's amazing. Does anybody think that's nuts to get a vaccination and then to get a shot of alcohol? Am I crazy? No, I think it's a good I, idea. I mean, you got to make sure that they're not impaired yeah, right. <laughs> on the right, consent but, side of things. but It's uh, not buy a pitcher, get a shot. Just you know. <laughs> I just think that we got to make this thing more convenient, and that will help a lot. I was checking CVS, not to say that it's always going to be this way, but 
I checked CVS on Sunday in Maryvale, and they were taking walk-ins, no appointment. And the wait time they had up on their website was like an hour and 10 minutes. Will, in your estimation, because we had this conversation also probably about six or eight weeks ago, that the pods themselves, the statewide mass vaccination sites, were obviously the most logistically favorable to getting the most shots out at a time. When you have people who are highly motivated to get vaccinated. So we'd say we've passed that point at this moment. Yeah. I would say two weeks ago, we were probably not quite there, but now we are. If you go to vaccinefinder.org right now, well, I've checked almost every day for the last 10 days. You go to Vaccine Finder, and when I punch in my zip code, I get like 10 hits within five miles pharmacies, all of which have tons of appointments. Yeah, supply and demand has shifted, and, and I think we're to that place where the highly motivated and or resourced people are now vaccinated. And we got to change the strategy if we're going to get to those people that are willing to get vaccinated and want to get vaccinated, but they're not willing to go to a website that looks like it was built in 2006 to do it. Or, or they can't. They don't have or the, they can't. the time or they have the right computer system or... They can't get off work any time of day or night. All those things, we just need to make it available to everybody. The states that are doing better than us, if you look at places like Maine and some of the other top 10 states, never went to a mass vaccination, but had built out an infrastructure of vaccines in places like middle school gyms and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. As much as we're always pushing for more and better and faster, can we take a second? to just take a look at India oh. and the fact that India is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1% vaccinated and is in the midst of perhaps the greatest COVID crisis we've seen in the world so far. And thank our lucky stars that we are where we are. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It was interesting. It took a very long time for them to have these big waves. They were among the latter countries to get it. A lot of us looked at that country and thought, Hard to understand why. I mean, it's, you know, in terms of population density, I thought they would be a powder keg that would just take off, and they didn't really early on. And that's, I think, probably similar to what happened in Michigan. Michigan seemed to hold it off for a very long time. And then when the new variants came mm -hmm. around, yeah. um, they just got slammed. And I think that's probably what's happening in India is the UK variant. So you think it's because it's just more contagious? It's more contagious and a powder keg of people susceptible because they, they hadn't gotten it yet. And so there oh. were all these people who were, I hate to use the term kindling, but it's like, you know, all this combustible material, if you will, that just got caught once oh. this variant got there. Yeah. I think at some point, Will, it was believed that India was able to avoid what is now happening because of its work in public health, because of its aggressive contact tracing. But at some point, that wall gets climbed over by the virus. Oh, yeah, for sure. And they're in for it for a while, I think. They're not anywhere near our ability to vaccinate, which just highlights the importance of the COVAX initiative to help do the best that the developed world can help a lot more the developing world. There is more momentum now. I mean, under the Trump administration, not only were we not in the World Health Organization, we had pulled out of that. We were not participating in COVAX at all. And now Congress committed $4 billion towards COVAX, which is good. And then U.S. Agency for International Development took $2 billion out of their budget recently and put that towards COVAX. All this is going to help, but there is a global supply problem that's going to continue. And I don't have any like clear answers to how to solve it. 
I have heard pretty persuasive arguments because we paid for the research and development for the Moderna vaccine. The United States government holds some patents that are really important intellectual property that mm. could be used by the rest of the world if we were to share that intellectual property with other nations for these mRNA vaccines. And so far that hasn't happened. I'm not an expert in IP or anything, but it seems like you need a combination of not just money, which we have put six billion more than any other country into COVAX, but also if releasing intellectual property would help then we need policy tools as well. Is a shortage because first world countries are hoarding the vaccine or is it a simply yeah. a production problem? Well, it's both. So the U.S. has contracted for three and a half mm -hmm. times the vaccine that we're going to need. Canada contracted for 11 times the vaccine they need. The UK contracted for, I think, eight times the vaccine they need. Western Europe, it's similar, like between three and 400%. And we did it because if the Novavax or the AstraZeneca or the Moderna or the Pfizer mm -hmm. or the J&J &J didn't work out, you were covering your bases by saying, well, we're going to hedge our bets and buy all of them. And then if two of them are not safe and effective or don't get authorized, like still AstraZeneca hasn't, or and Novavax still doesn't. We have contracts with them, so that's why they did it. But soon, this fall, I'm sure, or even later this summer, actually, I think today I heard the U.S. was going to donate a whole bunch of AstraZeneca to, to the COVAX initiative, which is a good thing. So part of it is that the developed countries, the ones that can sell treasury bills at 1% interest like us, bought way more than they need and the developing world can't afford it which is why covax is so important but there's also a supply problem how many billion is there seven billion people something like that i mean we contracted for a billion shots we have 300 something million people those are shots not i mean because you got to count some of these twice you need two shots for one vaccination is a vaccine still a vaccine still a vaccine two weeks ago when we did this podcast Hours after the podcast was when the J&J &J vaccine got put on hold. Mm. It came back just before the recording of this podcast. Yeah. And as Will pointed out this morning, the United States, to my knowledge, pledged their entire inventory of the AstraZeneca not yet approved in the U.S. vaccine to COVAX. Right. Does that say anything to people like, oh, well, obviously we're keeping the good vaccines and getting rid of the not as good vaccines? The thing I was most concerned about if the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and the if the FDA and CDC had continued to pause the recommendation for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I was really concerned that developing nations, for example, their prime ministers and health ministers and stuff, would look to that and say, oh, that advisory committee in the U.S. said that this isn't a safe shot. I was afraid that they would lose interest in that vaccine, which would be, I think, catastrophic from a public mm. health perspective, because especially the Johnson & Johnson, even more so than the AstraZeneca, COVAX has ordered a billion doses. I think about 35% of all of what they've ordered is Johnson & Johnson, because it's a refrigerator, not a freezer vaccine, and it's a one and done. It's simple to transport in villages and in tropical environments and in places where you don't have electricity. And that Johnson & Johnson vaccine is critical for 
the entire world and in particular yeah. the developing world and the question you asked is are people going to in some of those countries look at Pfizer and Moderna like those are the world class ones that are for rich countries and these are for us I don't know but I was pleased to see that the committee both times I listened to the whole thing especially the last meeting was much much better in terms of not just looking at the risks but also the benefits of the J&J vaccine yeah. it was a much more robust and full meeting discussion was really really in-depth and good one last big topic the herd herd immunity let's talk about vaccine hesitancy i want to first go around this entire group and say what are you seeing can you see anecdotal evidence in your daily life in your milieu related to vaccine hesitancy kara yes so we've talked about convenience and still the it was rushed. I'm uncomfortable. Do I really need it after I had COVID? Just Are there still healthcare professionals unwilling to take the vaccine because of their concern about the vaccine's safety? Yes. Yes. No question. The question numbers. Yeah. The last survey that I remember seeing was something like 40% or 30% of healthcare workers didn't want the vaccine, which is astounding to me. Mm. But you're hesitant, but at what point are you going to be able to win people over? Obviously, that's different for everyone. So we can maybe make a little bit of progress, but that's a huge number. Josh, that's what do you see at ASU? Number. So I live in the coddled uh, ivory tower, and in my immediate milieu, I think most people seem to be embracing the vaccine. I don't see a lot of people at the university not wanting it, but it's not far removed from that. I mean, certainly we're hearing about people who are the convenience factor. So I think that that's real. I think some people are not in a hurry to get it. Their attitude is, I'll get it, but I'm not a big risk, so I'll get it when, I, when it's easy. And then we do hear stories that filter back to us of people out there spreading horrible misinformation about sterility, and which you know you don't hear at the university, obviously, but you do hear out there, and that's not helping us. I mean, you know, those kinds of words, like we're just nowhere near ready for this yet. We need to wait. Will, from both a policy perspective and public health in general, about six or eight months ago when we were talking about vaccines, almost theoretically, you had said, well, at some point, a vaccination might become a condition of employment. So far, that hasn't happened. And I don't think it's going to happen. It might be a condition of travel, like to go to Europe. They might require that. I, th I think they are. I think I'm hearing that already. You have to show signs of a vaccine. Yesterday, I think they announced that if you're vaccinated, you can go to Europe this summer, but only if you're vaccinated. So, Will, within the public health space in general, but also as it relates to policy, we're running into more inventory than people who are willing to take it. How in the heck are we going to get from where we are now to a useful level of herd immunity? We need to make it more convenient. We got to get the vaccine to the people. We have to have a lot more spontaneous events where people can get vaccinated on the spot. I think that's job number one. Job number two is to make it a lot easier for doctors to have this vaccine in their office. And that means backing off on the onerous tracking and reporting stuff that makes it so hard for doctors to use these vaccines because talk to any doctor in an office, the administrative part of their job is what they really dislike the most. And to give these vaccines, there's all this extra reporting stuff beyond just going to ACES. It's just, it's hard. So make it 
so that doctors will have some in their offices so that you can get the vaccine hesitant people vaccinated and that the doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and stuff can close the deal right then and there after the conversation. So they go to their doctor, they talk about the vaccine. You got to close the deal right there. It needs to be in the fridge. Convenience for the people who haven't been vaccinated that still aren't questioning, just haven't gotten around to it. Bring the vaccine to them. That means me a lot more spontaneity in terms of getting vaccines to the people. And then for the vaccine hesitant, get it into doctor's offices. And that will be a slow slog because it's going to take people coming in for their physicals and things like that for them to do that. Or a lot of doctor's offices will be able to do push sending. I know the community health centers for sure are doing that because I go to a community health center and I keep getting texts from them that they have vaccine for me and I got it in another way. You got to work within the world that you can control. We can control how easy and flexible and nimble we are and how spontaneous we are getting vaccine out. There's not a resource limitation. There's tons of money for this. And we know from evidence and surveys that doctors and nurse practitioners, clinicians like that are the place that the vaccine hesitant will listen to. And you got to close the deal right then and there. And that's that. And the anti-vax people are, which is different from vaccine hesitant. To me, they're a lost cause and not worth resources. There is one more thing, and that is we need the FDA to come down and, and finally just approve yes. these things. Yes. Get them done. EUA is great, but it's time now. Kind of, you know, settle it and say, look, there's been millions and millions of doses given. And look at how impressive the yeah. reporting system, the surveillance system is. Not just VAERS, the vaccine surveillance system. All these yeah. entities have their reporting system. We've got a system that's so sensitive that it picked up a signal six people out of several million doses. So That's impressive. Yeah, that's so sensitive. If, if they can pick up a one in a million event, the reporting is good. and it, we now Which know means you've yeah. got enough evidence if you're FDA to say this is approved. People are saying, well, how come health professionals aren't getting it? Because I think some of them know that emergency use authorization is different from approved. Yes. What yes. do you think the holdup is? I don't know. To their credit, they're a cautious organization, which is why a seal of approval from the FDA is a pretty darn good yeah. uh, uh, nod of, of appropriateness. But nonetheless, I think they should be working on this. I'm glad uh, you said that. I hadn't thought of that, but it's, yeah. it's 100% you're right. Yeah. That would be a good policy move that would help a lot. Yeah. Speaking of credit, we should also give credit that 100 days into a new administration, the federal government not only met its goal, but doubled it to 200 million vaccines delivered. That was very, very impressive. But Kara, it was probably two months ago now that you said, man, I can't wait to the day that I can immunize a patient that comes into the emergency room. What do you think stands in the way of that? Is it exactly what we're talking about right now, the FDA approval? We'll put it nicely as bureaucratic mess. When someone has a cut, we give them a tetanus booster. Like, you know, I blink my eyes. I do it all the time. It's very easy. But I can only imagine that trying to get this done is going to be a very large bureaucratic move because there is so much paperwork. It's because of an executive order that Ducey signed that the state health department advised him on. And it was needed, I think, at a time. But I think now it's a barrier. And yes, you're going to lose some data with that. If you make it less bureaucratic, you're going to miss some shots. But what's more important, 
getting more vaccine into arms or tracking it so that it can be posted on a website. It's yes. rhetorical okay. answer. Yeah, it is rhetorical. Children, what's been going on with children? The mask mandate that was revoked for schools and I feel like the cases in children are going up and activities that children are involved with. I know Will put it very nicely on what he sends out for the Arizona Public Health Association, but pretty controversial move on the part of the Arizona government to remove the mask mandate for children in the last month of school, aside from politics. It's a good example of the inconsistent message from politicians and from public health personnel and kind of shifting the responsibility, which everyone can look at it in a different way, but kind of when uh, you didn't have to wear a mask in a restaurant, then restaurant owners had to decide what am I going to do? Right, right. And it was much easier for restaurant owners to deflect and say like, well, this is what I, I have to do rather than potentially turning away customers because they want to take a stand based on good public health advice. Now there's families that are in places in school districts that are going to remove the mask mandates and the families are now scrambling. And now the school districts have to justify it one way or the other. You just make everyone angry. And you put them in a no-win situation, yes. right? The restaurant owners, the, the superintendents, because they're going to, no matter what, they're going to be forced to make somebody angry because either they're going to be turning away patrons that insist that they should never have to wear a mask and they're, or they're going to end up turning away patrons who are like, I don't want to go sit in a place where there's all these people making you without masks on. So yeah, it's really 100%. And I feel like that was one of the few things, you know, infections going up in children because uh, and they show that it's not really at school, it's the extracurricular activities. But once you start getting masks, you don't have to have a mask at school, then why do you have to have a mask when you're playing your sports? And I feel like that was one of the few things as a mother that I could be like, yes, this is good. I feel like this is makes me comfortable. Now they took it away. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I'm going to push you guys to your limits. Will said, we need to come up with spontaneous ways of getting this vaccine out. <sighs> yes, I am asking you to think of spontaneous ways to get this vaccine out. One nomination of a spontaneous way to get this vaccine out. I'll just give an example. We all know that restaurants have been hurting for a long time and they're starting to reopen. Should we have a program where restaurants can give a shot along with a reservation? I think that at the very minimum, we should go to these restaurant districts downtown Gilbert, these various areas where people are always walking about. And there should be a little table tent set up to say, come get a vaccine. No appointment needed. Yeah. Come right in. Walk-ins accepted. Just set them up. Because you go to those places, you see people walking around without masks all the time now. So set up a tent and just get, you know, vaccines in arms. Yeah. There's all kinds of organizations like that, right? That are focused on downtown chambers, downtown business alliances that could be pretty easily done, right? Yeah. yeah. Remember back in the days of live remote broadcast for radio? You could do live remote broadcast on Radio Campesina or one of the Spanish radio stations and have some event where you have the radio station will be out there with the tent and you have a vaccine day, no appointment needed, come on down. And, yeah. And Telemundo could advertise it. They'll do it for free, probably. That kind of stuff. Great idea. Yeah. I'm going to go with large gatherings, baseball stadium. I know that there's fairs, I don't know, art fairs or whatever fairs are going on. Any of those gatherings, any big gathering. I was waiting for you, Josh, to say we were going to do uh, a vaccine with an ASU football ticket. Oh, well, you know, we'll see. I, I think ASU is hoping to have its people all vaccinated before football. I think, you know, we're already vaccinating a lot of students. Undergraduates are getting vaccinated as we speak. 
my son is an undergraduate at ASU, and he got vaccinated. He got the um, Johnson and Johnson, and I'm fine with that. You know, that was great. You know, you get he, he had some fevers, but then he felt you, great. Do you think the vaccine would make it safe to swim in Tepe Town Lake? <laughs> Can you do that. <laughs> Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Will. We covered a lot in this episode, some of which we will need to revisit sooner rather than later. As Will said, we in Arizona should control what we can control, including not only the ways in which we make vaccines available, more trustworthy and convenient, but also how the state of Arizona controls that $12 billion, that's $12 billion with a B, that needs to be invested wisely in our communities. No one can dispute that Arizonans have and are suffering. No one can deny that the money comes via legislation that is specifically titled the American Rescue Plan Act. Now all we need to do is to engage respected sector experts and apply evidence-based strategies to make that rescue a reality. Did we mention we're talking about $12 billion with a B? Stay tuned for more from this podcast on that subject for sure. Of course, our recent episodes on the affordable housing crisis, fragile food systems, Arizona tribes, schools, streets and transportation, and much more await your ears. There is a lot to listen to that points to ways we could spend that $12 billion well, featuring guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into the podcast app you're using right now, and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released, or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcast, or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.